Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast after a two-week hiatus. Yes, I'm back from the Pacific Crest Trail. Yes, I'm back recording podcasts. I tried to bank as many of them as possible before I left for that expedition, but I'm only one person and I could only get so much content churned out. Thank you guys for being really patient. I am glad to be back home and back in the studio and recording podcasts again. While that experience was an epic one, I'm a firm believer of just getting right back to the grindstone. And so here we are with another episode of the Coopcast. On this episode, we had a round table with our coaches and is all about 200 mile race strategy. That season is coming upon us right now where a lot of these 200 mile events are in the very near future. And so I wanted to get three of our crack coaches on the case in Andy Jones Wilkins, Duncan Callahan, and Corinne Malcolm and myself to talk about how we set up sleep strategies, nutrition strategies, and pacing strategies for our athletes that are participating in these events. If you are participating in one of these 200 mile events, listen up. Or if you're thinking about participating in one of these events, listen up. It is full of a lot of knowledge and a lot of things that you will hear from participants in these races is this is what I'm trying, but we really don't know the formula. We tried to distill it down to the best practices that we are implementing with our athletes across all of those areas. This conversation is great. It'll apply to not only people that are doing 200s, but also I think the uh, people that are doing particularly long mountainous hundreds will also get something out of this conversation. Much thanks to Corinne, AJW, and Duncan for coming on this podcast today. So here it is, I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here's my conversation all about how to execute a 200 mile race plan. We've all got athletes doing various 200 mile events. Some of them are doing the triple crown. Some of them are doing singular ones. Some of them are uh, domestic. I have an athlete that's doing Tour de Giant. So what we're gonna try to do is like alchemize all of the strategies for this big umbrella of 200 mile events, realizing that they are all in fact different, right? Bigfoot is a markedly different event as compared to Tour de Giant. So just like we kind of use different strategies for 100 milers, like Hard Rock versus Western States versus Havelina might have a lot of different strategies. These 200 milers are going to have slightly different strategies as well, but we're going to do our best to try to, like I said, just kind of alchemize it all together. Um, so in our round robin format that we're going to use here, Crane, you're going to get to start because it's ladies first, always ladies first. Try to paint a broad picture of what are the major differences with 200 mile races as an athlete would see or experience them? Because most athletes are looking at this from the lens of, okay, I've done a 50 or I've done a hundred. Most athletes are not jumping into the 200 mile distance as their first ultra running foray. There might be some of those people out there, but very, but very few. What are the major differences from the athlete's perspective that they're going to see during the race itself? I mean, there's a lot of obvious things there, right? There's the the time on feet. There's the the multiple nights for a lot of athletes. That's going to be a big a big thing. They've got multiple nights that they're going through. Um, you know, more more than two nights um, as opposed to maybe doing a hundred. Um, I think nutrition becomes a major factor because you've got to eat for so long, although the intensity is a lot lower. So maybe that's, maybe they surprise themselves and actually can eat a lot more and a lot of different foods than they, than they typically do in maybe a shorter event. So I think it's, it's honestly, it comes down to time, which makes sense, right? You're making a, you're doubling or tripling your distance that you've ever covered. So logically, you know, it's going to take a lot longer to get from point A to point B. Um, so I feel like those, anything that physiologically, ties into those kind of components of the, the the sleeping, the eating, and the needing to cover that much ground over X number of days, those are all of a sudden going to be, you know, how are we targeting those components of each of those races? Duncan, how do you see it? Well, I guess, you know, not to be too general, but uh, doing a tuna miler is six to 10 days off from work, depending on where you live in the country in relation to your event six to 10 days off from work, from family life. And I think that's a really big consideration. So the thing I'm working with on a lot of athletes is, you know, banking 
as much credibility at home and as much credibility at work as possible going in. And then just knowing you're going to have to pick up the slack on the back end. I think that's a, a really important distinction. Probably I'm, I'm overblowing it thinking about it in terms of myself, but you know, I think that's uh, important. And one thing I remember when I got into the sport, uh, you know, just a, you know, a hundred mile is twice the distance, but three times the duration than a 50 mile. All right. I mean, the same thing is true for a 200. It's twice the distance and a hundred, but it's probably three times the duration. I think that's some pretty good back of the napkin, rough math. So I think that ties in exactly what Corinne was saying that, you know, anything that, that goes great during a hundred mile could be amplified over 200. Anything that goes wrong during a hundred mile could be way amplified in 200. And, you know, I got some other thoughts on that too, when we talk pacing and whatnot, but I think those are just some generalizations to start. I love the fact that right off the bat, you're like, we need, you need to bank a lot of favors. You need whatever, yes. like whatever, you know, brownie yeah. points that you can pull, you're going to cash in yeah. all of those chips and then still go into yeah. the brownie point debt after the fact. And that's not yeah, only yeah. with work, right? But it's also with your crew and your pacers and your family yeah, and your spouse yes. and things like that. Like I personally, I had to pull out a lot of brownie points to get Liz to crew me for Tour de Giant because she had to basically, she basically had to she had to burn all of her PTO days just for this one event, right. not all of them, but most right. of them for this one event. And that's not a, right. that's not a light ask for almost anybody. Yeah. Right. Super holistic too. It's a very holistic right. approach, right? It's like physiology is where I go. And Duncan's like, holistically, this is a big yeah. ask for someone, yeah. for their family, for their employer. I like, I really like that immediate take on it, I think is, well, is a critical distinction. You know, again, I can see people coming from out of state to do Leadville. They can leave Thursday morning from Ohio, be back Sunday night in Ohio. If they're going to Bigfoot or something, you know, it's a it's a Sunday to, to Tuesday or a Sunday through when I mean it's it's seven to ten days commitment door to door. So that's a big it's a big ask. So yeah. Okay, yeah. Andy. You get to fill in any gaps. Uh, that's a hard yeah, ask. Riff, <laughs> Riffing off both of those, I, I think I remember first when I was first jumping from a 50 to 100 and somebody told me, you know, you're going to have four times the problems in 100 that you have in a 50. So you figure going from 100 to a 200, you're going to have about eight times the problems. So you really have to get your head prepared for lots of problems out there. And, uh, and whether they, whether they're nutrition problems, body problems, uh, the things going wrong, missing your crew, your drop bag, getting lost, all of those things get magnified. And I think you need to be prepared for so many more problems in a 200 than in a 100. But it's, it's more, but it's also the ones that you experience are amplified because of the fatigue and the duration out there. So you get a blister in a hundred mile, you can kind of like suck it up and just run with it for 20 miles. You get a blister at the same point at a 200 mile, you have 120 miles mm -hmm. to run with it. So yeah. that gets worse if you don't treat it. And same thing with nutrition and on and on and on and on. So I'll ping off of that and say, yes, athletes need to learn to adapt better in 200 milers, realizing that there are going to be more problems and those problems are typically amplified because of the duration and the fatigue is so much bigger than, than what they've experienced. But I would, I would add to that, that that makes it all the less likely that you should wing it, you know, with, especially with gear, you know, with your poles, with your pack, with the size bladder you have, like you have to geek out a little bit more. Cause if you just wing it, same thing in a hundred, if you just wing it and, Oh, well, I can make it through the last 20 miles with my handheld broken or whatever. You can't do that in a 200. And so it, it, it it's just the, the whole notion of everything being magnified, I think is really important for an athlete to think about ahead of time you know what where that really comes through actually is our lights mm -hmm. i see more people that kind of they 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 make a mistake at the 100 mile distance like they don't have good lighting they don't realize that their headlamp was only going to last six hours or whatever and they can get away with that for a 100 mile race because you know they might have an aid station where they can swap headlamps out or they happen to bum one from somebody else you can't like that's a really big penalty in a 200 mile race where not only are you going through multiple nights but you're going through multiple full nights and in addition to that the aid stations are typically further apart so you can't get rescued if you have one of those lighting lighting failures and that's a big one i mean i can remember people who, who are watching the youtube video of this will will see this but you'll see a lot of people use their iPhones 
out there as kind of like the final Hail Mary. Oh shit. You know, I've got to use this because, you know, I don't know how long my batteries actually last. So to Andy's point to geek out, know how long your batteries last. Okay. So you guys already with this overarching, you know, statement, we've already kind of pinged off the outline that we have, which we're going to go through pacing strategy, nutrition strategy. We're going to save the best for last. So let's try to blow through the first two, which is the sleep strategy, which is the one that everybody wants to know about, right? That's the one. So we're going to save that for the end. That'll be like the apex of the whole, the whole podcast. So we touched on this a little bit, Andy, you get to go first. How do you set up the pacing strategy for athletes that are doing these 200 milers, particularly the ones that are like just getting into it from the hundred mile distance? Well, I, I most of all want them to pay attention. Well, starting to pay attention to the course itself, to think through what you know, the, as you were mentioning, the distance between the aid stations, the terrain, get a real sense of what that would be, and then think through where their strengths and weaknesses are: downhills, uphills, single track, gravel road, that kind of thing, and then just pull it way back. You know, I, I think there's, as, as you all know, there's so much more hiking in these things. There's so much more stopping to take care of yourself. There's so much longer to regroup in the aid stations. So I would start with just sort of a, let's sit down and do a back of the envelope. What's your time goal? That sort of thing. And then really just step it back in terms of what kind of pace per mile are you comfortable hiking, comfortable taking in calories at the same time, and then even a little bit of, of mimic, mimicking that in training, but that's really difficult for most people to do. Uh, it's just just like a lot of races though they've got to keep a lid on it in the first part and and then make sure they're just focused on when they get tired when they get worn out that they're able to have some sort of goal on where when they want to get to where they want to get to so it's really like a three-part pacing strategy big picture where do they want to be at the end how they want to go from aid station to aid station and then how they want to take advantage of their strengths and their weaknesses as they're managing the course what one of the things that athletes will routinely do is they use they use like their kind of a cohort of people to determine where they are. So they're going to a new race, they go to ultra sign up, they're like, okay, I have a eighty two point seven percent ultra sign up score or whatever it is. These people have done this race before with about that same ultra sign up score. I'm gonna base my where do I want to be off of off of them. But I've always felt that with these types of races, the data sets really thin, you know, cause they're newer. That's a lot more, it's the, the results are a lot more chaotic, right? It's not as consistent because you have these big like failure points. You have somebody who's out there and all of a sudden they sleep for six hours, you know, that puts a big dent in, you know, whatever timing is. So like very briefly, like how would, how do you work through that aspect of, trying to paint the broadest brush of, am I going to finish on Tuesday or am I going to finish on Wednesday? Right. Cause that's, that's the scale that you're talking about, right. Or the precision that you're talking about. You're trying to figure out what day you're going to finish on first. I, I look at similar terrain events in terms of that they've done in terms of a hundred miler. Are they a 20 hour hundred mile finisher? Are they going to a similar terrain 200? It's going to be, again, it's a three X. It's going to be 60 hours or 65 hours in that ballpark. Are they a 30 hour finisher on a similar terrain course for a hundred? Uh, we're looking at 90 hours, 90 hours plus over a course of 200 in terms of just getting that initial ballpark in motion. Of course, that's the last time too. That includes four, five, six, eight, ten 10 hours of sleep, um, you know, along those lines. And that's, I think that's been the hardest thing to entertain is like, yeah, your moving time is going to be your pace during your moving time is actually going to be, you know, uh, potentially feel a little strenuous your your elapsed pace is going to look a little weak because you're factoring in so much stop time. I think that's a, a distinction that needs to be made. So Duncan, you're taking like a mathematical approach to it almost versus a cohort approach that I mentioned earlier. At least to get an a initial framework. And then, yeah, then maybe looking at the cohort, I think there is some intelligence to that aspect so long as you're not getting too wrapped up in it. But I think you've got to, you got to have the high level approach to say, okay, what's my ballpark? Am I going to, like, should I plan for 60 hours or should I plan for a hundred? Right. And that's, that's honing in on that, you know, that's such uh, a big rate. I mean, I think that's kind of, that kind of speaks to once again, the, the newness or like the novelty of these types mm-hmm. of races that you have to start with such a broad end point. If somebody's doing Western States, they know if they're a 24 or 25 hour finisher, 
they know okay. if they're scraping all the cutoffs, 29 to 30 hours. I mean, typically in those 100 milers, you can narrow it down to about an hour. Here we're trying to yeah, narrow it down to a day, right? It's not even proportional, yeah. right? We're narrowing yeah. it down to a day. So, Crib, we're going to move on to you. Like, what do you have to say about this whole pacing proposition? How should athletes, when they're looking at this, which they're all doing right now, how should they initially try to set it up? So I think it's, I think it's hard. I think it's really easy to say, I want to run this time. And I think we fall into that same trap in um, shorter distance racing as well. Right. Like I, I want, like you get really focused on a time. And so honestly, one of the biggest things I've done with athletes who are inexperienced at the 200 mile distance, I'm fortunate all my athletes that were in like a second or third season of 200s now, which is really exciting um, because we can narrow it in based off past experiences. But I send them out like it one to test gear, but I'll, we talked about testing gear, right? How important that is. So all of my athletes have been on big fast packing missions this year. And I know this is kind of tangential, but I think it's really, I think it allows them to settle into how, how fast can I move over this terrain? How efficient am I with my gear? How efficient am I with my sleep setup? How comfortable do I feel taking a trail nap versus, you know, getting into an aid station using a big sleep center. And we're going to talk about that more later. But I think that these big fast packing missions, like I've got an athlete heading out on the Wonderland Trail, she's going to do it in three days. Pretty, That's pretty relaxed. That's very chill for her. Um, she can definitely, I think, do it sub 24 in one push. Um, but she's going to do it over three days just to like be out there and spend a lot of time on her feet um, and break it into 30 mile sections. But her, before her first 200 mile experiences, we also sent her out on big backpacking, fast packing missions as well to just dial in that pace, that feel, like, what can I maintain all day? What is my, is this a 40 mile day? Is this a 60 mile day? What does that feel like on my feet? Um, and I think when they can rain in that sense, you know, it's, it's, that is easier to feel than to say walk early and often, right? right. Like right. you could just tell, tell them that for pacing, walk, walk early and often, but by having them go experience something different than a race that is multi-day, that's self-sufficient, um, I think allows athletes to dial in effort and then we can correspond to that in a way we can extrapolate that out to what we think their pace might be. And what the, put the, put some of the boundaries on the fast packing mission in terms of duration and or mileage, just so everybody can kind of get kind of a context of it. Yeah. So I've had them do anything from just an overnight. So two days, um, and that might be 60 to 75 miles in two days. Um, I had an athlete do section J of the Washington PCT, um, as a fast pack. So he did kind of got a little bit of a late start, went really late into the night, slept for four hours and then finished it the next day. Um, I also had an athlete who was supposed to go do big Secchi, which is 155 miles in the Sierra, um, and he, and he's got a lot of experience fast packing. And so they were going to do 155 miles over seven days, um, or six days. And so that I think is, you know, maybe the extreme for someone prepping for a 200, cause that's a really big load, right. but it happens to be something that he really enjoys doing. So I think that, you know, it could be anywhere from that one night, maybe pushing 70, 75 miles in, you know, in two days, or it could be, you know, you could break that out to, to 90 to hundred miles over a couple, like over three days. So Obviously we could, we could equate that to time too, but I think it's easier to send athletes out on a route, um, when it comes to figuring out those fast packing and like forte or like going out and doing that. Are those fast packing trips for their, at least when they're on their feet moving, are they slower, faster, or the same speed than they're locomoting during the 200 mile race? I think it depends on how long they're out there for. Okay. So it could be either. You could do it in either, in, in yeah, any one could, of those could, three situations. They could definitely be pushed faster than what they'll do over the 200 mile race. I think when my athlete did his section J section, it was, it was faster right. than what he covered for like Cocodona, for example. Um, but I think, you know, it could also be slower if, you know, you're doing Moab 240 and the fast pack that you're doing on is, you know, in the cascades and you're not moving that fast. So that's specificity right there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to, get, I wanted to, before people go out and say, oh, well, I'm going to do this three day fast packing trip and it's going to be equivalent or equal to what I think I'm, what, what I think my moving speed is going to be on whatever they need to think through. Is the train similar? How much does the fast pack slow me down compared to what my race kit is? Like all of those things need to kind of be taken into consideration. I still think that in any way you can drive it, it's like plus or minus 
whenever I've seen any of those. Like it's not that which which on the scale of we're trying to figure out what day they're finishing on, right? Let's go yeah. back to that. <laughs> that gets you to what day are you going to finish on? It might not get to or is it the morning or the afternoon of whatever day, but it'll get you to at least what day are you going to finish on? You know, I'll just highlight there uh, the importance of a training camp, I think, for a 200-mile prep phase. Um, you know, I have three athletes getting ready for Bigfoot, and they just, you know, they're they're fast runners, too. I mean, these are like three-hour-type marathoners, their normal daily run and 7-10 pace on flat ground. And so, the, the, right, totally different than Bigfoot. Yeah. And so, uh, the training camp that they put together, uh, three of them went together. Um, was a bunch of uh, running and hiking between 18 and 23 minute pace, you know, which is kind of what they're on similar terrain, a vertical, uh, probably a little rockier. It was in that priest area, AJW. I'm sure you've been there, but um, uh, but anyway, just the importance of training camp to really try to dial in some pace if terrain is an issue for you in your day to day running or week to week running. So we're going to move on to our next topic. And because, and I think this is a good segue to it, Duncan. So we'll kind of start with you because one of these, one of the things that these training camps are good for is to dial in your nutrition, which is once again, something that's unique and it gets exponentially more unique as the duration kind of goes up. We, we all know the runners at the hundred mile distance that can survive off of gels. And I always bring up Carl Meltzer because he's the best example of this. He'd show gels, 12 Red Bull. Exactly. Yeah. Right. He'd show up to yeah. the hard rock 100 with a 48 pack of vanilla gels. And that was his <laughs> nutrition. And he could do it. And he was really, he was really successful at it. Yeah. There might be a 200 miler out there that has that strategy. They show up with three to, to use your X, to use your multiplier, Duncan, yeah. <laughs> instead of two, yeah, yeah. it's three, three 48 packs of gels and blows through those throughout the 200 mile race i doubt it but needless to say it's a little bit more it's it's more complicated so duncan how how are you having your athletes kind of incorporate their nutrition program in, in, into these camps and what does that look like yeah well i'd say you know first of all you the burn uh, one thing to be aware of is your burn rate is lower right your intensity is lower your burn rate is lower and so if if your normal burn rate uh, is 500 to 800 calories in an hour it might be 400 to 600 in a 200 uh, something along those lines, but also your ability to consume increases because the intensity is lower. So I think that gap, uh, between, uh, you know, the, the underfueled gap shrinks in a 200, if you're doing it right. Um, I definitely am advising athletes on a, a more real food or whole food diet. Um, I think you can get in trouble with that with high fiber, right. But, a little more protein, a little more fat, a little more carbs, something a little more savory potentially. So athletes have been practicing with that on the trail. The rice ball concoction is is a famous one, obviously. Uh, and then the soup concept or the noodle concepts uh, at self-built aid stations during a training camp. I think that's really important. Uh, so again, so acknowledging burn rates lower, acknowledging your ability to consume is higher, and then really putting a, an emphasis on more real food or more whole food, uh, I think is important. And there's, you know, quite a few other distinctions. I'll let, you know, HDW or Corinne answer next, but I mean, there's, you know, there, there's quite a few other things to consider as well. Corinne, you want to jump in on that? Yeah. I think that most of the athletes that I've had who have done these 200 plus mile races, cause they are, they're really 200 plus, right? right? We're, we're right. talking about right. 240. We're talking right. about, you know, it, it gets, it gets a little insane. Um, and until last year, I had no experience running over hundred miles. And so I was, you know, guiding these athletes with, you know, the knowledge and using their experience. And, and it took a lot of time, I think for me to, it, it took, you know, I think every time that you step up in distance personally, as a coach, you also kind of have this, this new insight to bring into things with your athletes as well, which I, I just find, I find valuable growing as a coach in that way. Um, but so what I found with athletes too, is that I feel like in a normal hundred and a normal, um, a normal 50, you know, you're carrying a lot of your nutrition on you. You're, you're eating every 30 minutes. It's, it seems very, you know, rigorous. And I find that most of my athletes in these 200s, you know, like lean towards, they're going to come into a a life station and aid station, and they're going to eat more in that chunk of time because they're getting their quesadillas, their burritos, their, their, their burgers, their whatever, whatever the aid station is throwing together. 
And so they, you know, you're going to, they kind of have this influx of calories. And because you're burning lower, you're in, you're often taking in more than carbohydrates, right? You're taking in fat and protein and that I think sustains you for longer as well. So you can get away with not having to be like, I need to eat this thing every 30 minutes, obviously encouraging athletes that you need to carry food with you because it is a long ways between aid stations, but you don't, I think have to be as in my, in my experience and experience with these athletes, you don't have to be as rigorous of like, I need to take in a hundred calories every 30 minutes. You can get away with like, I just ate a burrito. So I'm good for 90 minutes or two hours. And then I'm going to eat again. And you're going to take something with you from the aid, but you don't have to, you know, be pulling out gels and chews, you know, you can, you know, get in and get your, get your ramen, get your instant mashed potatoes, get your quesadillas, um, take some of that in your pockets to go, but it's not as, and maybe it's not as rigorous in a way to, you know, I, I, I like, I like this idea of being like, I'm going to have my big snack, my meal in a lot of ways, take some food with me on the road so that I can top up because it's 20 miles to get to the next aid station. Um, but not, you know, needing to be, you know, eating every 30 minutes in this, in these increments, I think is, is very different from a 50 and a hundred to the 200 plus mile distance. So this like uh, strategy that we've colloquialized into nibble, nibble, sip, sip might not be as appropriate as the duration goes up because as Duncan mentioned, you have the ability to tolerate more and also tolerate more real stuff. You don't need to nibble, nibble, sip, sip in order to reduce the incidence of gastrointestinal distress. You can eat and wait and eat and wait and eat and wait. That's yeah. what it seems like. If it's Cocodona, you had to drink a bunch because it was really hot oh, day one this year for Cocodona and their inaugural event. But, um, you know, carrying lots of fluids on them. And actually I had an athlete who was with Jamil at an aid station and or had heard that Jamil was going to carry, you know, an extra something for this one section. And he's like, if Jamil's carrying extra water for this section, I'm carrying twice the amount of extra water <laughs> for this section. And it, it, paid, it paid off. But I think, you know, if you stay hydrated as well, you're going to, your stomach will continue to work well for you. Right. And so I think it's, you know, you, maybe you're, you're sip sipping your way between aid stations, but you, your stomach will tolerate these bigger boluses of food just because the total intensity and total stress on your body for most of the pack, most of the field, um, unless you're like way sub 60 hours, maybe, um, you can get away with eating these bigger, these more substantial meals in a lot of ways. Okay, Andy. So the million dollar question for you is, is this, does this increase the number of oatmeal cream pies and or puking or decrease the number of oatmeal p- cream pies and puking, or is it a combination of increase and decrease at the 200 uh, yeah, mile distance? I, I, I think, I don't know. I, I haven't been around 200s a lot, but I think the puking is a little bit lower actually for, for some of these reasons. The I, And I've found that people coming to the sport from like the backpacking and mountaineering background really are, are, are already ready for this. Take, take the classic climb up Rainier, right? Where they go up to Muir camp and they hang out and they sleep for like whatever, four or five hours. And they wake up at midnight. They take a huge amount of food and they summit it. And then they turn around and go all the way back down. That's kind of a lot of what you're doing just multiple times in these 200s. So take borrowing or, or take a backpack trip. You're on a big backpack trip and you you hike for 13 miles and you stop for 45 minutes and you eat a ton of food your heart rate goes way down you sit down maybe you lay down and then you get back up and now you got to be used to you know get ready to that first mile after you've had this huge gut bomb is going to be painful but the more you do that the more you're accustomed to it um so i i I would urge my athletes to to sort of lay low on the oatmeal cream pies until maybe until the last day (laughs) (laughs) saving for the treat at the end uh i i i i'm glad this got brought up nobody know nobody studied this scientifically but just through observation i think that the however you slice and dice it puking per mile puking per participant puking per hour is markedly not just a little bit markedly lower at mm-hmm. 200 mile distance compared to other ultra ultra marathon distances and it's because as duncan led with the intensity is so much lower you can tolerate more food stuff it's not this toxic combination of intensity management with calorie management at the same time because the duration is so long that the intensity is so low that you're, you've got more opportunity to just to kind of either screw it up or take in real foods or just slow down if you get queasy right that's the that, that's actually people's biggest problem 
at faster ultra marathons is they're trying to push the envelope so much on both the nutrition and the pacing front simultaneously, which kind of creates this like toxic combination of that, that ultimately results in some GI distress. So you still did. So we solved the, we solved the riddle of more oatmeal cream pies later and less puking. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, let's take, let's take a crack at the thing that people are like, this is probably the most talked about thing in these 200 milers is because you have to sleep with exception for the winners and the people who set the course records and things like that. Almost everybody else, the rest, the 90% of the field, they have to sleep at some point. And that sleep can come in a combination of using the sleep stations and just fully kind of doing a reset. It can, you can use dirt naps. You can use your crew vehicles if the rules allow for it or any combination of this. And I, and I remember this experience um, in the days before Tour de Giant, uh, a couple of years ago when I did it, is I was just asking some of the more seasoned participants what their strategy was for this. And it could not have been on more polarizing like ends of the spectrum, both in terms of when, but also where you should sleep at the high alpine refugios after you've done a long climb. No, you you should sleep at the life bases down low after you've done a long descent. You should sleep in the morning. You should sleep at night. You should sleep for two hours. You should sleep for 20 minutes. There was no, there was zero consensus amongst all of that. And I think that that, that, that story kind of aligns with other people's anecdotal tales of how to actually manage this. And I don't, I don't know if anybody's actually kind of like figured this out or not. A lot of times it takes care of itself because they just go so long and then have to pass out in the dirt and then they wake up and they kind of do it again. But let's start to, to, to kind of touch up, let's start to touch on that. And maybe we can kind of like peel back the curtain for what we think our athletes are going to go through. And then if we've personally experienced this, how we've kind of, we've kind of managed it. Andy, we're going to start with you on this one. What do you have to say to this like sleep riddle that ultimately needs to get solved for these athletes? It's definitely the great mystery, right? Of these two hundreds. It's kind of like what nutrition was in hundreds 20 years ago before we started figuring it out. Um, I've, I've actually tried, we had, I think I had seven, 200 milers all at once, uh, two years ago. And, uh, and they were all over the map with sleeping. There was some that would do the strategy of run and you're what you just said, Coop run as long as you can until you fall asleep in the dirt. And then each time you fall asleep in the dirt is going to be a little bit closer to the finish line. And then eventually you'll just make it through. Uh, I had a couple of those and then I had the, Oh, I'm going to, when it gets dark, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to set an alarm. I'm going to get up. I'm going to, then they get there. They have trouble falling asleep. They feel like they're wasting time. They get up and they start running again and they get sleepy an hour later and they fall asleep in the dirt. Um, I do think there's no substitute to experience. Uh, You know, I'm currently coaching an athlete who's finished a one 200 mile race and it was four years ago. Uh, he had had difficulty uh, with with uh, staying awake, and then he all of a sudden kind of got a whatever you'd call it a fourth wind on the third daylight day, and just raced raced daylight on the third day and got it in before dark. So I would say if they don't have experience doing it, or if they have negative experience doing it, coming up with some plan. That you, that you think might work, but most of all, being ready to adapt to that plan. If you say, I'm going to go to sleep at 70 miles and you're not sleepy. I talked to Don Freeman about this, who did the Triple Crown in 2018. He had this whole plan to sleep when he got to a certain point. He wasn't tired. He went 20 more miles. He was tired then, and he went and fell asleep. Then I think the big question is, and this is so personal, how long do you need to sleep for are you, could you get away with 45 minutes? Do you need two hours? Uh, how are you going to manage, you know, coming up from that sleep and getting going again? So I don't, I, I'm going to sit here and say, I don't know the answer to that question. How long do people need? Uh, but I think there've been enough of these now that I think it was Duncan earlier said, you know, if you're going to take 90 hours to do this thing, you're probably going to have an accumulated 10 to 12 to 15 hours of downtime during that time. You, the best way to spend that is sleeping. That's a good non-answer, Andy. 
I'm not going to let you get away with that. We're going to come back to it a little bit. So Duncan, we've used that. We've used what you kind of started out with. There's going to be a lot of downtime in this. How, how do you, how do you structure it for the athletes that are preparing for it, for these? Things? Well, I think, you know, so Coop, you put out an article recently that I think offers a, a good framework. Um, and then, I'll, and I'll also highlight, obviously, you know, if, if you're a race winner you know, or competing for the win, you're 60 hours or less or, or something, the answer is probably a little different. I don't know what the median time in these 200s is, but what, 84 hours, sure. yeah, 88 or something. Like that. Yeah. And so we're talking 72 to hundred hours. And so how I've kind of framed this out in my mind, again, not hundred percent sure it's right or right for everyone is like that 36 hours. So you get through 36 hours essentially without sleeping. And then you look for a, you look for sleep. Maybe that's one and a half hours. Maybe that's four hours, depending on who you are, but that is a sleep window. And then another 12 to 16 hours after that, um, you have a, a smaller sleep window, one to two hours. And then from there, uh, depending on your goal, it could be one more real good sleep window, two plus hours, four hours, assuming you're sleeping, or you just, after your second sleep window, you revert to sleeping in the dirt as best you can. I know it's not for everyone, but as you get to the finish line, so that's one strategy one thing that I've brought up with several athletes, and I don't have an answer, but I think it's a consideration is your caffeine consumption and how that impacts your sleep schedule during the race. You know, I, I would assume there's been some impact. I don't know if you've got, you, you all have experienced that yourselves, Corinne and the TRT or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but uh, that might be a point of consideration. And then the last thing I'll bring up is do you sleep on the trail or do you sleep in the aid station? Are you guaranteed a quiet aid station, sleep station? earplugs, uh, uh, eye covering for, for blackout. Those are some solutions. I think people need to be prepared to use while they're on the trail. It's so, so let me try to encapsulate that a little bit. You're almost like anchoring the first one at a specific time. So for everybody, but the leaders, we're talking about 90% of the rest of the pack that might take 72 hours plus we'll put that in a box, right? 72 to hundred hours. Irrespective of that, where you are, 72, 82, 100 hours, whatever it is, that first sleep's time is anchored somewhere past 36 hours. Yeah, it might be. Exactly. And then it's more opportunistic, I guess, is the the best way to kind of summarize that, right? Whether it's in dirt or a sleep station or some kind of combination of those. But the, the, the point is, is that first one is kind of anchored. I think that's an important thing. I think it's at least important for the planning going in. Like I have a plan and now I need to be adaptable. Like you're saying about Don, AJW, and I might go 20 more miles, but I think at least to have a plan uh, gives you some reassurance and then you can always adapt, which I know we talk about all the time, uh, adaptability. So, Corinne, what do you have to say about this? Because you've personally, you've kind of been at that razor's edge. edge right of do i need to sleep or do i need not to yeah so i was gonna say once again i think it's like the sub 60 hour camp versus the everyone else camp yeah. um for me personally so i did tahoe room trail in just under 45 hours and finished around 2 a.m and i didn't feel tired i never felt like i needed a nap but i got in the car and immediately fell asleep um so i will say that like if i had been continuing on or if I had been, if that had been a 200 mile race, I, I probably would have had a trail nap coming up for sure. And I think that for athletes doing these 200 plus mile races, just like Duncan said, anchoring that first sleep approximately, you know, if you say you start at 6am one day, you go through the first night, you go all the way through the first night, you're going to be fine. You're going to get sleepies in the morning, but you're going to, you know, the sun's going to come up and you're going to feel great. Um, you're going to push that the next day. And then I think that there is some science about, and I think this is, goes back to like, our natural circadian rhythm a little bit um, is that if you, if you anchor that first sleep to be in the early hours of the morning before the sun comes up of that second night, so that when you wake up, you're waking up with the sunrise because that's going to help kick you back into action. Um, Feel a little bit less groggy. Hopefully it'll feel like more substantial sleep than maybe the two to four hours that you actually were on the ground for. And then from there, I think being opportunistic, is really the name of the game. It gets a little bit harder, um, excuse me, with athletes 
in some of these races where weather might be a big factor and where trail naps become a little bit more dangerous, um, versus, um, using those, using those life stations to sleep at. And so I've had athletes in the past where it's like, they've been opportunistic, but man, we've come up with so many different sleep bags to send them to those life stations so that they could sleep there if they needed to, because it was so much safer for them to sleep there and some warm gear and have that warm gear at those places. Cause you can, you get to make a bag that, you know, is going to this, is going to this life station, um, particularly athletes who maybe don't have big crews. Um, that has been really important um, from a safety standpoint. Moab 240 can be really cold in the yeah. evening. It's, you know, it's, it's in October. Um, it can snow overnight. It can be hot during the day. Those are hard conditions to sleep in. And so um, you got to kind of play with that as well of, of having stuff you need so that you could sleep in a life station when you get there um, while still, you know, having a good bivy and stuff so that you can safely take a trail nap, um, when you might be in more inclement weather. Um, and I just, I love, you know, then you've got the people at the front who are doing the 15 second trail naps or as coop, as you told me about the tour where runners are literally just putting their heads in their poles. And when they fall off their poles, they get going again, um, or putting their poles in the right direction. So you know, which way you're headed when you get up again, which is super important. And so, um, there's different strategies for everyone, but I think the key is that most people are going to anchor their first, their first sleep, um, kind of late into night two. And then from there be more opportunistic, either using a combination of trail naps, um, and trail or train ups with life station sleeps, um, depending on weather and, and your personal setup and how comfortable you are falling asleep in those places. Yeah. I remember somebody telling me that whenever I'm going to anonymize this as much as possible, whenever he or she would take a trail nap, they would put a piece of gear from their pack where they needed to go. They would like literally like throw it down the trail, 10 or 20 feet, peel off and then take a nap so that they knew the right direction to go once they once they woke up that I mean, you don't think about that when you're like, Oh, I'm going to take, you know, my grilled cheese sandwich at mile 70 where like everything kind of works out perfectly on paper. You don't think about you wake up, you're so disoriented. It's like, which way do I go down the trail? You pull out Gaia or whatever you're using. And sometimes that's not, that's not, you know, foolproof. They would just literally throw a piece of gear down the trail and okay, I'm going to go and grab that whenever, whenever I wake up <clears throat> here, here's how I set it up. I start out with going back to what we talked about very, the very first, what ballpark time frame are you in to finish? Then are the zero miles per hour material? And I answer those two questions first. And that has, it's a little bit to do with, okay, are you trying to make the cutoffs? Do you have the particular time goal and on and on and on? How, how impactful is the finish and things like that? And then that sets the framework for how much you can actually sleep. And it's not the most precise, you know, formula in the world, but then you know how much time you can spend going zero miles an hour. Is it four hours? Is it six hours? Is it 10 hours? You're trying to put them in these, in these, in these general buckets. And the reason I go through that strategy first is because that sets then the options. And after that, it becomes, I take Duncan's strategy of we anchor the first one and then it's a choose your own adventure. So they know how much total time ballpark they can spend going zero miles an hour. After that first sleep, which is usually into the second night, then they start to deploy those options. Do I take a 30 minute trail trail nap? Do I spend two hours at a sleep station and things like that? Unless they have a whole lot of experience I try not to to extrapolate or guess that too much because, I mean, it really is throwing a dart at a dartboard kind of blindfold. I like the options strategy a whole lot more. Sometimes we'll dial those options in based on their previous experience. So if they have a lot of backpacking experience, as Andy mentioned, right, they're going to be more comfortable finding a rock, putting their backpack onto a rock, turning that into a makeshift pillow, and as long as the weather is good, as Corinne mentioned, kind of falling asleep. Those people without a lot of backpacking experience, they're going to want to get to an aid station where they can curl up in a sleeping bag on a cot or maybe in the back of their truck or whatever and kind of and kind of sleeping there. So that starts to shade the strategy a little bit. But I start with how much time availability is actually ballpark, how much time availability is there actually there to go to go zero miles an hour. And I never hesitate to bake in more sleeping <clears throat> than is the absolute bare minimum. I think that's where a lot of these strategies go awry is a lot of people are looking at it as, 
almost in Corinne's situation where can I finish this and then pass out? Like what's the, what's the maximum tolerable amount of sleep deprivation that I can kind of possibly go through? I don't really take that approach in these because I know the time gets, the time doesn't totally evaporate. So if you spend two hours sleeping, that zero miles an hour doesn't go into thin air because you're able to go faster once you wake up and you're able to locomote and you can eat and you're a little bit more, more aware and you can, you know, negotiate down a tricky trailer kind of, kind of whatever. So I, I don't, so anyway, I use that to just to say that I don't hesitate to bake in more or to have options for more sleep than what might be kind of ideal from a timing perspective, because I know that sleeping time doesn't completely evaporate into thin air. You get a little bit of it back just in faster, faster trail locomotion, but it all starts out with the pre-planning of how fast can you go when you're moving? Okay. What is, that sets the parameters? How much time can you spend going zero miles an hour? And then we start to run the if then choose your own choose your own adventure options. Crane, you wanted to say something. I was just going to ask if have you talked about uh, a wake up plan? Have you ever had an athlete mm-hmm. who you know obviously no one's going to fall asleep on the side of the trail for eight hours? Yeah. Well, maybe maybe, but like you know, at, at a sleep station, have you had anybody oversleep, go from a two hour sleep to a six hour, and blow their whole race plan? Any, anything like that? Well, I'll tell another funny story about Tour de Giant. Tour de Giant, they are on it. Like they give you two hours and at two hours on the nose, they, they literally kick you. They literally kick your cot and they tell you to get up in, you know, whatever language they speak. And then, and then you're kind of off and it's like a serious deal. Like you cannot commandeer that cot for more than the, the allotted time. Um, most people are just hurting so much that once they wake up, they should just go. But that actually brings up a really good question of how long is too long, right? Is it more beneficial to get a big chunk or to break it up into, into different chunks? And I honestly have never, I've never, we we can all round robin this again. I've never run into the issue of somebody sleeping too long because they typically they just because the environment just kind of wakes them up and they and they kind of and they kind of get down the trail. Typically what I what I'm having my athletes do is set a timer for whatever we think is the best option, 1 hour or 90 minutes or whatever just on their phone or on their on their watch or whatever. But I don't know what you guys have to have to say about this like how long is too long strategy. Kren, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I don't know that there is a is it too long. I mean, you're you're working with a finite amount of time, right? Like you can't if like, as you mentioned, there's only so many zero, you know, hours where you can move zero miles an hour. Although we, we personally have a coach at CTS who has, um, taken some, taken some serious naps during a hundred. That's because um, he's fast. He's yeah, fast and he's he can fast. take a four hour nap at a hundred. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little bit frustrating sometimes, but, um, where if we can get him to stay awake, he'd be very good. But so I don't know about that, but I do think that, you know, if, if you don't have a crew, like, you know, oftentimes my athletes will utilize their crew, say, Hey, like, I want you to wake me up in 20 minutes. Hey, I want you to wake me up in an hour. And I think that, you know, having a good crew is really, can be really beneficial if you don't have that, or if you're at a place in the trail where you don't have that, you know, it, it really, I, I don't, I would struggle maybe to go to sleep because I'd be so nervous that I wouldn't wake up. I'm that person who sets, sets like 12 alarms. If I've got to travel to the airport early in the morning, cause I'm like so afraid I'm going to oversleep. Um, so I think that would be something to that my athletes might have to juggle, but I don't know that there's a too long there's, I mean, you just, you run out of time at a certain point. And so I think that you work with them, you work with near the minimum, you know, maybe that long sleep initially is two hours. And then from there you go, you go shorter, but, um, I don't think anyone's going in saying, Hey, I'm going to sleep for eight hours here and then get going. I just don't think that that's a realistic, um, expectation for any of these races. I, I don't have any experience to say otherwise. I, I, I like, I like Corinne's, I like Corinne's idea about the circadian circadian rhythms, I think is how you say it. I, I think if you map out the strategy based on when it's going to get light out, when it, those, those things are definitely impacts, you know, I've thought of, I think of hundred mile racers who've done say uh, UTMB or grindstone, you know, that start at the nighttime and they're like, what the heck I'm, I'm getting sleepy and I'm only 30 miles into this thing, you know, because it's two in the morning and that's when they normally get tired. Right. So I think, 
think one of the things about the sleep strategy or how much is too much, right, is if you can, if you can settle into a sleep at 4 a.m. knowing it's going to get light at 530, that's perfect. Here, here's a caveat, though, to that second night, uh, starting sleeping on the second night. If you go into the race with poor sleep management for whatever reason, you're nervous for the you know preceding three days going into the race, or you had some sort of big work project or whatever, right? If you're already behind on sleep, I don't think you can get away with that to the same degree. I think that you you're almost better. And this is a point of communication between, you know, like coaching athletes that we have, like leading up to the race. If for whatever reason, their sleep is poor leading up to it. It's like, Hey, take the first night, first night, take a, take an hour, take a couple hours right there. If you've got enough of that, you know, zero miles an hour kind of padding, uh, based on, based on your fitness level, that's a better situation. We didn't mention this. I, I always encourage people to bank sleep. I know there's a lot of physiologists out there that's going to, you know, knock around the terminology and say, this is a better term versus that. But, but the, the concept is very simple. You're just sleeping more in the week preceding the race, either by going to sleep earlier or waking up later up to about 10 hours. That's actually really effective for not only erasing whatever sleep deficit that you had going into it, because Nobody sleep, you know, nobody has very good sleep uh, patterns and hygiene, but also it does seem to be effective in terms of minimizing the impact of sleep restriction or sleep deprivation as well as, as well as has a performance impact on how long you can go uh, without it, without initially sleeping. So a little bit of this strategy is that we've mentioned at least to, to, to this point of the podcast is kind of idealistic and athletes are, should be really mindful of what are you going into the race with? You can go into a 50 mile race and not have good sleep. It's not ideal, but you're not going to fall asleep in the middle of 50. Maybe our coaching colleague that we were you know, teasing earlier might, but, but for a 200 mile, I think it absolutely does change that first night versus second night strategy. If for whatever reason, everything gets, gets, gets screwed up, kind of go, uh, going into the, uh, the race in advance. One other thing that I want to mention that that I want to kind of get everybody's take on, we're kind of running to the end of the podcast right now, is that there's a difference between a trail nap and a sleep station. And I'll go first this time since I haven't had the privilege of going first on this one. But I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a better situation if you can push a little bit further into a sleep station and then get good sleep hygiene while you're there. Take all your clothes off, get into your sleeping bag naked, put the blinders on, put, I put, during Turgiana, I had headphones and I had white noise in the headphones, so I wasn't distracted by anything. And you can actually fall asleep and get some high quality sleep if you, if you go through those, you know, those two or three minutes just to kind of like wind down and get into an environment and get into a good environment versus putting your head on a rock and trying to get a few hours that way. Now, that's that's an idealistic situation versus reality, but if you can create that out on the trail, either by pushing a little bit further, or if you're close, like if you're already in a sleep station and you're li- like a little bit tired, I think it's better to like get that sleep earlier so that it's higher quality because once again, you make it back up kind of in arrears. But I've never, I'm going to, yeah, go I, ahead. I want to, I want to, I can't wait to jump. I'm going to beat my mental training drum here and completely agree with you and say, not only that, but give yourself, clean yourself off with wipes, brush your teeth, you mm. know, make it literally like you're going to sleep. Even if it's just going to be an hour, 90 minutes. I think there's that mental thing of my shoes are off. My clothes are off. Totally. I'm clean. I put deodorant on, maybe splash some aftershave on and go to sleep journal what else do you do before you go to sleep you could journal yeah tuck your kids in right next to to you (laughs) (laughs) but the routine i guess i guess my point is is if you have if you're kind of like in between strategies right if you're in between okay i'm gonna i'm gonna try to set this up and sleep in the dirt i'm gonna try to set this up and sleep in, in a sleep station try to shade it more to where you're using the sleep station, but take advantage of it. Like, because the quality can be so much higher, like really think about what do I want there from an equipment perspective? 
what's the 60 second or 120 second routine that I want to go through just before I kind of go before I go to sleep and just like use like use all of those tricks and try to create this like familiar as familiar as possible like at home environment even if you had a pillow from home I'm planning on taking that to to uh to Tahoe just having a pillow from home like that kind of stuff I think goes a goes a long way in terms of squeaking out like every last little bit of quality in those ridiculous environments Go ahead, Corinne. I think a lot of it has to do with experience. Kind of, you know, for first time people going into 200, there's a, you know, I think they're asking themselves what stories do they want to be able to tell after the fact, right? So it's a lot more sexy to say, oh, I slept on a rock, you know, a, a bear pooped on me, I, you know, slept on another rock, fell asleep on my poles, <clears throat> you know. So really trying to steer that conversation to, you no, know, what kind of result, what kind of experience do you want to have in this? versus, you know, what story do you want to tell? You know, I've had, I've had that conversation with one or two people over the past Go- couple of years. The goals of the athlete, right? I mean, yeah. it kind of, we kind of try to pigeonhole that into the time that they want to finish in. But Duncan, you're absolutely right. Part of the goal framework for an athlete is, is what, ex- what experience do you want to have? Do you want this to be an experience where, yeah, right. I learned how to sleep in the dirt or I learned how to learn this other skill or whatever. I think that's an important concept because right. in, in most cases, you've got time. Like these are set up, the race director set these, set these things up to, for people to succeed, not to fail. So they're setting their cutoffs for the aid stations and also for the, for the, for the race as a whole so that reasonable people with reasonable fitness can complete it as long as they're not hitting some like epic failure point. Not to say that they're easy or to trivialize the effort or anything like that, but the race directors want, they want to keep, you know, a reasonable time frame on it so that they're not out for there for weeks. But they're trying to they're trying to set things up so that athletes succeed and not fail. And to that point, there's intentional kind of cushion in this whole deal. And as we see with Western States, everybody pushes that cushion till the very end and finishes in the last hour. Grant, you're going to get the final word on this sleep thing because you've been chomping at the bit. I know it. Yeah. So I would just say that, you know, as, as we discussed between the difference between like a sleep station or a life station versus, versus a trail nap, although one definitely does sound sexier than the other, um, is this notion too that I, I think of trail naps as like it's emergent. That is an emergent situation where you need to go be on the ground right now for your own safety, for your own sanity. And, you know, preferably maybe that's when you've got a pacer with you or something. But I do think that that is, that is an, a more emergent sleep situation and that can be planned or, you know, as, as part of your kind of ad hoc plan for the adaptability portion of this, right? Like those are going to be short. Ideally, they're going to be only as you need them so that you can get quality sleep in those sleep stations, particularly the early sleep stations that you might encounter, you know, versus like I told my crew for TRT, like, Hey, I'm not going to try, I'm going to try not to sleep, but if I need to, I'm just going to sit on the ground for 15 minutes and then we're going to get going again or whatever, like setting that kind of expectation. Um, so I wouldn't think of those like, yeah, I'm excited to, you know, go lay down on the ground for four hours. Like I think you need to be prepared for that emergently, you know, and have the gear with you that necessity that will, you know, keep you safe in order to do that if you need it, but an ideal situation. Right. And that's what we keep going back to is the idealistic situation with two hundreds and, you know, you can plan for an ideal race and get something totally different, but is to utilize the sleep stations to the best of your ability earlier, like, you know, you know, in the, in day two and day three, um, and use those trail naps, those rock naps, whatever they might be as emergent holdover naps that are just going to give you that 30 minute or that 15 minute reset, or according to Walter, the 90 second reset, (laughs) um, you know, an extreme example there to, to keep moving down the trail. I know that you, unintentionally took many a trail nap towards the end of tour as well, um, where you physically just woke up on the ground a bunch. And so it's like, once again, that's probably a fairly emergent situation as opposed to a, a planned, I know I'm going to go to this point and nap. So that's kind of how I delineate. I think those two forms of sleep that you might encounter during a 200 plus event. Yeah. And then the final complicating piece is when is your caffeine commitment point? At what point do you just start whatever your caffeine strategy is, you start deploying that because you know you have to make it to the finish line without the next deal. Cause that's like a, you can't, re, you can't retract that. Right. Especially if you're like a slow metabolizer, like myself, like I know if I start taking caffeine, I'm not sleeping for the next eight, at least eight hours, at least. 
So you've got to, it's like a it's like a commitment point, which it's a whole nother kettle of fish that we can that we can handle on another podcast. All right, we're gonna wrap oh, it up there. Like Tim Ferriss. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, we're gonna wrap it up there. Thanks you guys for coming on the podcast today. I hope everybody who's listening to this now has a more successful 200 mile race plan in regards to pacing, nutrition, and sleep. Andy, Duncan, Corinne, thank you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one. All right, folks, there you have it. Thanks again to everybody listening after this two-week hiatus. I really appreciate your listenership. This podcast comes to you without sponsorship or without any sort of other financial entanglements. That is an ethos that I started at the very beginning of this podcast way back in 2019. And despite multiple attempts for people to want to come on and sponsor this podcast, I have remained true to that. I do it for you guys, for the community, because I want the information contained within this podcast to be really authentic and unadulterated from any sort of outside influence. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners. And thank you to our guest today for getting on the Coopcast today. As always, you guys, we will see you out on the trails.